0: Amen. Well, let's get our Bibles out. Again, welcome to those of you joining us online. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 4. Last week, I scared you by telling you we're going to finish chapter 2 and do all of chapter 3. And you all kind of gasped. And then I thought, well, what are they going to do this week when I tell you we're going to start at Hosea 4.1 and we're going to end in Hosea 6. My goodness. It'll be alright. You won't die. <laughs> oh goodness. What do you do if you really need someone to listen to you? Like when you have something to say and you need the person that you're going to say it to to hear what you're going to say. What do you do? You don't just say it. Like, for example, if, if you're a, a parent and, you're, you're try- and you have something important to say to a little child, you grab their face and point it at you. And then you speak directly into their face, right? Because you need them to to hear that. If you just say it, well, who knows what will happen. If you're, let's say, a a teacher of junior high students, Lord bless you. And you have something very important that the students need to hear, and you notice that they're not paying close attention, you're going to do something like, maybe just stop talking and then it gets that in that moment of awkward silence then they realize that you're not talking and that they are and then everyone gets quiet and then you can say what it is that you have to say or maybe you're discipling someone and you notice something in their life and you need to address it and so you've prayed about it and you've waited for the right opportunity and when that opportunity comes you're going to move into that situation and you're going to very intentionally and and you're going to use words that you've you've thought about how they would be received and you're going to speak those words very carefully into somebody's life because it's important right you don't just say everything the same way See, the point is, is that when we have an important message to communicate, we're going to use different things to communicate. it. If you want to teach young people about the dangers of texting and driving, you're not just going to say, hey, you shouldn't text and drive. What you're going to do is get this mangled up car from somebody who is texting and driving And you're going to use that to captivate their attention so that you can then present the message that's going to impact them and make a difference so that hopefully they won't text while they drive, right? Sure. So if that's how we communicate messages that are very important, then the next question is, how do you know if the message has been received? How do you know if what you have said and the way in which you've said it has actually communicated the things that you desired to be heard? How do you know if people really listen to what you say? Is it because they're looking you in the eye when you're speaking? No. You ever been talking to someone who has bad ADD and they're looking you straight in the eye and as you're talking you can tell they're literally a thousand miles away they're looking you straight in there's nobody home and you have to go hey here I am oh yeah or is it that when you're speaking to somebody the fact that as you're telling them the message they're nodding and responding to what you're saying and sort of giving you some feedback? Is that an indication that they've really heard what you've said? No. I do that to my wife all the time. (laughs) She's not in here. Do not tell her that. Now, that's not how we know. The single greatest demonstration that our communication has actually been received in a deep and abiding way is that it will yield change that's how we know that somebody's really received the message that we're desiring that they get see the question really is did they change because if they change you know that they heard, right? So if you have your listening guides, you know a person has really listened when there is change. Change is the indicator of heartfelt hearing. And so when we get to the book of Hosea, with all of the shock that it likes to uh, come at us with, There's there's nothing conventional about the book of Hosea at all. The question that this book is asking, the overarching question that it's asking is simply this. Are we listening? That's what God is saying through the book of Hosea. This is why God uses such radical examples and illustrations in this book. That's why there's such vivid language. That's why you you see God bearing Himself to us in ways that you don't see anywhere else in Scripture. It's because He's using all of these means to get His message across. Just like we would do if we had something very important to say. Now how much does God love us? I mean, yeah, we know God loves us. But how much do we really know about His love? How far is He willing to go to make sure that we listen to what He's trying to tell us? Well, he called a prophet named Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer to get us to pay attention to what he's trying to tell us. Then he told his faithful servant to start a family. Knowing that it was going to be heartbreak and pain and that she was a serial adulteress. And even last week, we saw where God instructed Hosea to buy his wife back off the auction block and to take her home and to love her and to restore her. See this Hosea-Gomer love story, it provides us a picture of God's love and his Tenacious desire for us to hear the message that he's trying to get across. He's saying this relationship between this faithful man and this adulterous woman is a picture of the relationship of me and my people. This is the way my people have related to me. And he wants us to see that even though that's the case, which it is, No matter how unlovable or unfaithful we are, God continues to not only love us, but to pursue us in our unfaithfulness. What an amazing thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Not that, but this. The fact that we come in here every week And what are we doing? In other words, most of us in here would call ourselves Christians. We would say that we're devoted to God above all other things. Wouldn't we say that? But It's interesting. We would say that we're we're dedicated to living our lives in accordance with God's word. But if that were the case, why did God call me? We already have his word. You have it. What do you need me for? Why don't we just read it and obey it? And when we come together, we would just worship God. We would sing and worship God. And if anything, we would just read Scripture. But you wouldn't need anyone to preach. Have you ever thought about this? If what you hold in your hands is God's perfect inerrant word, then what in the world am I here for? I think about it a lot. How would you like to be called? How would you like God to call you to take something perfect and inerrant and then do something with it? What do you do with perfect? It puts you in an impossible situation week after week after week. And it makes you wonder, wait a minute. See, God didn't call me to read. He called me to preach, which is a strange thing. It's almost like when you think about it, you think, is God saying that in calling preachers that his word needs something else? No. He's saying that in calling preachers his people need something else. That's what he's saying. He, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an indictment on us, actually. It's God's love towards us in that he knows our fallibility, our gullibility, our, our waywardness. And so you, you think about what, what happens. See, God calls... Specific men to preach to specific people. Now, I want you to think about this. No, No new technology has caught God off guard. It's not like God didn't know the internet was coming. He wrote the Bible fully aware of everything that exists today and fully aware of everything that is yet to even be invented. But yet, he calls men to preach to people. And here's what I believe with all of my heart. It's one of the reasons why I think my life has taken the course that it's taken. I believe with all of my heart that to be effective... Most effective in what God has called me to do. I have to preach to people that I know and that know me. See, the words that God gives me may be beneficial to other people. But they are intended specifically for you. And so we may benefit from the words of other people that we have the opportunity to glean from because of technology, but I believe with all of my heart that the better I know you and you know me, in other words, the longer I stay in the same place, And preach to the same people. The more clearly God communicates to us. So how does God know? How does he know? If we hear. What he's saying. we change. And if we don't change, we don't hear. The Bible calls that repentance. Repentance is simply hearing deeply in such a way that it yields change. It's it's the it's the enlightening of one's mind or the changing of one's mind such that actions follow that validate that change. So I ask questions like, well, how does my culture listen to the word? Hmm. How does my church listen to the word? How does my community group listen to the Word? How does my family listen to the Word? But I think the question that begins the answer to any of those questions is, How do I listen to the Word? That's the question. How do you listen to the Word? God doesn't just want you to hear Words this morning. He wants you to feel them in your heart. We're not created. To read words. We were created to feel them. And to live them. God gave us his word. Not just to read it. But to feel it. To ingest it. To to eat it, to take it in, make it part of who we are, wrestle through it, to feel the weight of it, or the the joy of it, or the pain of it, or whatever it is, and then live it out. That's his intention for us. And there is a famine in the land, make no doubt about it. There's a famine in the land. I don't mean in this land, I mean in our land. And I don't have time to go through all the reasons why. But lazy leaders, lazy listeners, shallow. So much nonsense that has pressed its way into what we might think of as church so let's pray and then we're going to read these opening verses let's pray father thank you for these words maybe this morning we realize in a fresh and new way what asking you for ears to hear really means These are words that you slaughtered your son that we might hear. You have done all of this in the book of Hosea that we might really hear what you're saying. Thank you for the obvious reality of how important what it is you're saying is to you and not just to you but it is to you that your people here thank you in jesus name amen see that's why god doesn't just say things but he grabs your face and points it to his and then he speaks Hosea 4 verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. You children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge or a case. That's a legal term. It means He's he's bringing a a case against the inhabitants of the land. So now God's about to lay this out. Here's, Here's the way God feels. So imagine you've got this marriage... That, that is a picture of God's relationship with his people and the way his people relate to him and the disaster that it's become. And so now when we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's like, it's like Hosea and Gomer have come in to the counselor's office for marital counseling. And now it's God's turn, it's Hosea's turn to speak about what's going on in the marriage. there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of god in the land now anytime in these chapters that you see the word knowledge that hebrew word knowledge there just in your mind know that that word means personal knowledge intimate personal knowledge anytime you see that in this In these chapters, it means really know. So what God says is there's no truth, there's no mercy. There's no personal knowledge of God in the land. So God lists three sins of omission, three missing things, truth, mercy, knowledge. People think they know God. But what God's saying is, they don't know me they haven't taken time he's like a like like i've heard a thousand times in marriage counseling you don't take the time to know me you don't really listen to me does that sound familiar that's what god's saying about his people next god's going to charge the people with sins of commission. So first we have what's missing. Now we've got what's committed. Verse 2, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. So what it means is the pools of blood run into other pools of blood in their violence. So these very things that God warns against in the Ten Commandments, they're busy and about doing. Now, what happens in a culture when there's no witness? We should all know the answer to this because we're seeing it today. As witness descends, it takes great toll on the culture around. It's not just on us, it's not just on professing believers, it's not just on churchgoers, it's on Everyone, Look at verse 3. Therefore, because of these transgressions, the land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the relationship between... The people of God understanding the mission of God and how that impacts the land in which God plants them. So for example, in Deuteronomy 28, the Bible said, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground and the increase of your herd and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. You see the connection? And then in Jeremiah chapter 29, here's what the Bible says. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, there's a a connection between the people of God and their faithfulness and the experience of the people in the land in which he's planted them. And the the point I'm trying to make here is that, that following God is not an informational process. It's not just information. See, here's what happens. See, if the mission of God, if the mission of the church is reduced to the spread of information about God, but it doesn't, shape or change the way we use our hands and feet then the church becomes more like a library than it does a world-changing force it's not just the it's not just information but if we neglect this priority look at what happens look at look down at verse six my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge for lack of not knowing me personally Because you've rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God. And I will forget your children. So he turns his attention towards the priests and the unfaithful leaders. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will charge, I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. What an indictment. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Do you see, the, the, do you see God's Desire like don't don't just read that and then sort of recoil and, and, and think, oh wow, look at how terrible it was. That's the mistake. You should read that, and you should you should the first thing that should impact you is how important it is to God that his people hear what he's saying because listen to the words that he's using to describe the situation. This is a spouse in marital counseling that is. Pouring their heart out and saying, these are the things that are going on in this marriage that are killing me, that are breaking my heart, that are causing me pain and suffering. I mean, you get down to verses 15 and 18. I got no illustrations for you. I mean, in those verses, Israel is like a heifer. Now, I could say a lot of funny things right here, but here's the thing. It's not a funny moment. If you've ever had to deal with, which again, I haven't, which is why I'm not going to say a lot about this, but if you can imagine what it would be like to deal with a stubborn heifer, what are you going to do? It's not like your little puppy dog. You just drag that sucker where you want it to be. No. No. And God is relating his people to that verse 19. He says, look, at the, the wind has wrapped her up in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. See, they're, they're operating in the mode of doing. See, they're still sacrificing and they're still doing all these religious activities. But God says... His people, they have no foundation. They're just blown like a feather in the wind. They're just all over the place. They don't know what they're doing. They haven't listened. What they're doing is not heartfelt. It's just empty religion. And it gets worse in chapter 5. Hear this, O priest. Take heed, house of Israel. Give ear, house of the king. For yours is the judgment because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread to Tabor the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter though I rebuke them all I know Ephraim that's always a word for Israel and Israel is not hidden from me for now O Ephraim you commit harlotry Israel is defiled and then look, God starts using words. I mean, look at what he, look at his, how he's bearing his, his heart and how he feels. He uses the word desolation in verse 9. In verse 11, he uses the word oppression. Verse 12, therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth. Like a moth that's just eating away at your, your, your clothing, no matter what you can do. And to the house of Judah, like, like rottenness, like rot. To make matters worse. When Israel realized the the problems that they were in and that they had. They didn't turn to God for help. They then turned to Assyria. And God's even saying, even the southern kingdom of Judah, which is not who Hosea is prophesying to primarily, but God even says that because, I'm sure, that the southern kingdom would would hear what Hosea, Hosea prophesied. And they would think, well, well, look at those northerners. They really don't know what they're doing. But we're down here, you know, trying to serve the Lord. And he says, oh, no, Judah, you're, you're like dry rot. Now, here's my question. Why is all of this in the Bible? Why, why is this text before us? What, what good is learning about... The problems and the deficiencies and the pain caused by these people. That's what we have to ask ourselves. Because if we leave here this morning and we don't feel the weight. Or we don't understand the, God's purpose in it. Well, we failed. We failed. This is a warning. It's what it is. It's a warning. It's a warning to us, but it's not the warning that we think. Here's the warning God's warning to us you are loved. He's saying, take note, brace yourself. There's not a Category 5 out in the Gulf heading straight for us, take precaution. Oh, no, it's, it's a million times worse than that. You're loved. You can run away from a hurricane, but you can't run away from my love. That's what he's saying. Now, I know we don't get this. But look, look at, verse, look at chapter 6. Watch, the, watch what happens. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return to the Lord, for He has torn, but He will heal us. He has stricken, but He will bind us up. Now, let's think this through. Feel the weight of God's discipline upon us. And here's here's the thing. We're not not turning to the law. We're not turning to moralism. We're not not turning to self-righteousness or pride. He's saying, come, let us, after all of this that he said... All of these ways that, that we have caused him pain and that we've disappointed him and that we've we've forsaken him and that we've gone through the motions and all the all the pain that we've brought into this marriage, this covenant marriage relationship, all the all the history. See, we all we so oftentimes in human relationships, we have a breaking point. We have some point where we say, you know what, I, just, I can't take any more of this. You're just too much. It's too far. It's gone too. But God doesn't have that. I mean, look at all of these things that are going on. And then he just says, come and let us return to the Lord. He kicks the door back open again. But it's these next two lines that will bring great clarity and understanding. He's torn, but he'll heal. He's stricken or wounded, but he will bind us up. When he says return to me, he's he's saying repent. But, But here's the key. Repentance is not found in seeking change, but in seeking God. The reason why so many people miss repentance is because what they seek is change. And you cannot find repentance by seeking change. See, repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to as much of you know of yourself to as much as what you know of God that's what repentance is it's not, you don't you don't we don't know everything but what we know of our sin we're taking what we know of our sin and what we know of ourself, and we're turning to God with that and what we know of our sin and what we know of ourself is what he's revealed to us. And so he's the source of repentance. That's why you don't get repentance by seeking change. You get it by seeking him. See, repentance is not a bad word. It's a good word. Repentance is a, a sanctification barometer. This is what I mean. Repentance is the meter in a person's spiritual growth. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, it's going to be dependent upon, it's going to be determined by how do you respond to your sin? That's how you're going to know. It's either going to advance or it's going to hinder your sanctification. All determined by how you respond to your sin. But but here's the thing. Repentance is not this break glass in an emergency thing. That's not what repentance is. Look at what the Bible says, for example, in Acts chapter 5. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give it. It's a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a gift that, that we all need. And if you don't think you need it, Oh, Lord, you don't know how badly you do. Because 1 John says, if you don't think you need it, then you don't know him. But once we know him, we want to know how much we need it. And we we want repentance to be something that we treasure. And that causes us to rejoice. Every time we hear the word. Or we think about it. It should just delight us to no end. Because. No amount of sin is too great. No hopelessness is too much. And no level of guilt too high. That repentance cannot heal our heart. None. Which is what. Hosea 4 and 5 build a case that if ever, when you get to the end of chapter 5, if ever it was, and God said, I'm done, it would fit right there. Instead, he says, now in light of that, come and return to me. But what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to return to him? See, it, it, it requires, why, why would we resist this gift? If this is a gift and it's such a good and wonderful gift that we ought to treasure and be, be, and every time we hear the word repentance, we ought to just, our heart should just jump for joy, then why do we resist it? Why? Well, because it requires that we would submit ourselves to the hand of the master craftsman who is going to accomplish the work. See, see, repentance is an, indi- is, is an indicator that we've heard with our heart and that we've responded in action to verify what we've heard. And so who is the one who's speaking, who's convicting, and who's, who's orchestrating the change? There's a master craftsman at work. But you have to submit yourself to him because he doesn't force himself on anyone. So you have to submit to The good work. So so look, in verse 1, the words torn and wounded or stricken, these two words, they describe our experience of God's good action. This is how we experience God's good action. You see, you don't think you understand this, but you do. You do. You just don't think about it in this way. You won't treasure the good news if you don't understand the bad news. You don't delight in provision unless you've ever gone without. So the Bible teaches that what we do that causes us to... Be able to delight in the gift of repentance is sin. But remember, to God, what what is Hosea taught us? All sin is adultery. All sin is idolatry, and all idolatry is adultery. But we can just jump from sin to adultery. But it goes through the path of idolatry. And so, idolatry is something that we do in our heart. That's what it is. Stop thinking of idolatry as some wooden statue or some. Listen, that's, that's the least effective way of understanding idolatry idolatry is what is something we do in our heart at the very core of who we are and the bible teaches that look at ezekiel 14 son of man these men have taken their idols into their hearts what does the bible say in habakkuk remember when we went through habakkuk on wednesday nights then They swept past like the wind and go on guilty people whose own strength is their God. See, they made their strength. Their idol became their strength. That's not some external carved image. That's not some golden calf thing. That's internal in our heart. That's what we do. Idols are things that What are they? What, what, are, what idols are you prone to? They're things that, that captivate your affection. Our affection. They're things that we put our trust in. They're not things that we, we mold or shape or carve. or No, no. The problem with them is that we put our affection in them. We put our trust in them. So, how does it feel when God loves you enough to remove things from your life that you put your affections on or your trust In, It feels like torn or stricken, doesn't it? Yes, that's exactly what it feels like. I just wonder if you've ever realized this before. Most often when we're mad at God, it's because Of his love for us. That's the reason why we're mad. When someone says to you, I'm so mad at God. Why? Because they're torn. Because they're stricken. Why? Because something that they put their affection in. Or their trust in. Or their hope in. Has been removed. And we don't like it. You don't realize how much you don't like God's love upon your... It's too intense. It's too unyielding. He loves us with a severe love. It's not the kind of love that we love each other with. It's a totally different kind of love. He relentlessly loves you. And understand, when you say that, you need to know what that means. That means that whatever you put in the wrong place, he's going after. For your good, and you're going to feel torn and wounded. And here's the deal. This is how you can see how different He is than us. How oftentimes, are the people that God has called you to love, you fall short. You don't do what you know you ought to do, moms and dads, because you don't want your kids to feel torn. Or wounded. God's not codependent. He's perfectly healthy. He knows you're going to throw a temper tantrum. He knows you're going to wave your fist at Him. But He still does what is best for you. Sometimes, most times, almost all the time, the best gifts in this life come through pain. Remember, the illustration started... God sent the the warning shot over the bow of humanity the minute sin entered the world. He said to Eve, the joy, the inexpressible joy of birth will now come through excruciating pain. To let us know that from here forward, that's the new equation because of sin. So when God takes our idols from us, it's an act of mercy and grace and love. Idolatry causes us to love things that are far less than what we were made to love, right? And God will, he refuses to settle for that. He just won't, he won't be like we are to each other. He won't. He refuses. And here's why. See, God hates sin because, why? Because it robs people of himself. That's why. That's his hatred for it. Because, see, sin violates his, Law, his truth, his purpose, his plan. But why is there a purpose, plan, law in the first place? To bring us to him. The only reason, like, you can't just say, well, God, lo- God hates sin. Well, why does he hate sin? Just because he's in the mood to hate stuff? No. Everything that's sin goes against him loving you. That's the whole point. So every time we sin, we're moving in the wrong direction, and we do it, and we do it, and we do it, and God opens the door, and opens the door, and opens the door, and says, come back to me. Come back to me. And Then we don't listen, and we don't listen, and we don't listen. And So what does he do? Just go, well, go on with your dumb self. No, or we'd all be in hell. He starts getting more and more activated in what's going on, right? See, if you belong to him and you just want to keep going, Jonah, you're just in the mood for whale belly. You can't get enough of whale belly. Here you go. He doesn't just let you go. He's a, he's a, he's a fish-sending God. He's so determined, He'll have you swallowed up by a big fish. So, that's why you feel torn and wounded. Oh, what's God doing to me? Well, why is all of this happening? Because He loves you. Well, you don't remember when you were lost? You don't remember? I remember. You don't remember that? You forgot that? You forgot. I remember before I had a knowledge of God. I didn't know there was a God. I had no knowledge of God. You know what I was doing? I was skipping, man, skipping down the trail of sin. I loved every step of it. I never felt guilty. I never thought it was wrong. I never cared. And then one day, bam, everything changed. Because God said, enough of that. No more of that. There's not going to be any more fun in that. Yes. He hates sin because it robs people of himself. Now look at verse 2. So he says, you're going to feel torn, wounded. Return to me. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, you getting the picture here? He will raise us up. Didn't we just sing that? That we might live in his sight. You see that? man. After two days. You know what that means? That means it's going to feel like forever. What do you mean? It's only two days. Oh, really? Somebody laid in the tomb for two days and rose up on the third, didn't he? Let's just... Let's just visit for a second those two days. Were those two days quick and easy? Huh? What about the disciples? Those were the two most miserable, longest, depressing, defeated days they could ever imagine. They were the darkest days of their lifetimes. a million. They felt like they would never end. Yeah, that's what it feels like, those two days. Yeah, they they were looking at each other in disbelief by how cowardly they were, by how wrong they had gotten the whole thing, how twisted up all this was, like how everything they thought was this and now it's that, and they how how it just nothing fit together, wounded by their choices. You think those two days weren't long? What was it like when Peter and those six other disciples with him were walking down the hill back to that fishing boat? Three and a half years of with Jesus. Here we go. Back to where we started back to this see what we had committed in our heart we left behind forever and here we are same place same boat same net same is it the same is it they get in the boat they go out oh that's just two days all night they're out there all night is it the same oh it's not the same because now there's zero fish not one See, before they knew God, oh, they were catching fish every day, making a living. Now, zero fish, not one. There they are. Sun comes up. They're not, trust me, there's no, nobody's out there laughing, carrying on, telling jokes. No. I believe it's dead silence. Silence. They're so discouraged. No one wants to say anything. They know why they haven't caught anything. They're so defeated. They're so, I mean, and they're thinking that my whole life, from here on out, look at, I mean, what in the world has happened? And then John chapter 21. They look up. And there's Jesus standing on the shore. See, after those two days have done their perfect work, then it's time to be in his sight. Yeah. Man, there goes Peter stripping his clothes off, diving in, trying to get to the shore. And the Lord says, put your nets on the other side. Too many fish, the boat almost sinks, doesn't it? Because here's the thing. They had gone back to doing the very act of something that was far less than what they were made to do. Is there, is there anything wrong with fishing? No. Unless you've, you've got your, your trusting in fishing. If all your trust is in fishing and God's called you to trust in him, then he's never going to let fishing satisfy you because he loves you too much so you're going to feel torn and you're going to feel wounded for 2 days but then then you're in his sight Whew. man see because the path of restoration it goes through the places of pain that's just our experience we're feeling torn we're feeling wounded God's not apologizing for that. He's loving you with all of His heart. That's the whole message. There's no Christianity without a cross, is there? No, there can't be. So when Jesus becomes your Christ, what's He going to do? He's going to show you, He's going to introduce you to the cross. Because that's where the glory is. That's where his love abides. That's where it flows freely. And so repentance is his invitation. Come back, return to me. Come back through the door of the cross. Come back to me. You feel torn and you feel wounded. That's okay. Because it's all that we may live in His sight. I just want to live in His sight. I just want to live in His sight. I want to be in His sight. The crazy thing is that I can live in His sight. I can be in His sight. And yet, idolatry is still a danger. It's when I realize I am Gomer. Gomer is me. It's you. How could it be that he would love us? So listen. Hear in your heart. Feel the weight of his words. And then realize that if you say, I cannot change, it is disbelieving the gospel. That's never true in Christ. Ever, for any of us, at any time, we worship a God. Who loves us so intensely that sometimes we feel torn and wounded. It's just His willingness to stop at nothing to bring us to live in His sight. So don't you want to live in His sight? Amen. Don't you want that? Turn away from your idols, your affections, where you put your trust. Stop giving the best of who you are to lesser things than what you were made for. Let's stand and bow our heads.